Lord, we are so thankful that we could be here to study your word, um, Father, to, to grow in our knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would let that knowledge transform our hearts as your scripture says in Romans 12, to renew our mind, to transform it to be like the way we should be thinking, to be like the way you think, so that we can accomplish the work that you've given us to do, so that we can give you glory uh, rightfully in all the praise that you are due. And uh, Lord, we are grateful that you have brought us here today to worship you in this way. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so, uh, everybody's, I think we're good. All right. If we think about where we were last time, right, we, we find ourselves in uh, lesson five of Fundamentals of the Faith. So uh, if you've done that workbook, we are extending some of those chapters because we want to spend more time on them, right? So lesson five, if you prepped it for last Sunday, awesome. Um, we are, we are going to do our second Sunday on it today. So to review, because you memorized everything from a week ago, to review, we were talking about the work of Jesus Christ, and we did a couple of big topics. Just tell me what you remember from last Sunday's like big topics, and then I'll show you. It'll be great. Yes, right? Total depravity. Are we totally depraved as humanity? Is humanity totally depraved? Yes, we are. Which creates a need for the work of Christ. You know, see? Crushed it. Crushed it. That's what we did. Man's need for the work of Christ and the work and the cost of it last Sunday. So we use that illustration of the black backdrop, which I handily have much behind me. We use that illustration to say, hey, we have to set this up, not only to illustrate the praise and glory of Christ, but to be honest about who we are and our need for a Savior. And then once we fully know that, then when you start putting the costs of Christ on that black backdrop, that diamond, that something better than diamonds, starts to shine more brightly and more brightly and more brightly as we saw his cost unfold and everything he went through, crucifixion, unfair trials, unfair treatment. He's an innocent man, the innocent man. But yet he died on the cross for our sins and he finished it. Yeah. Amen. He finished it. So today, as we keep going, we're going to get into then, as you see on the screen, the provision of Christ's work, meaning what did it provide for us? We're also going to cover the motivation of Christ's work, which is uh, a hard lesson for us. You'll see, I'll tell you why in a minute. And then the resolution of his work and his continuation of his work. We're going to cover those three things, and then I'll wrap up our study of the work of Christ today. We have a memory verse that we've been working on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4 is for this, this, uh, this, this chapter. And I'll just go ahead and put on the slide, right? And, and so we have that. So um, in, in my small group, we often just say it as we did last week. This is a giant chorus of voices working together to achieve a common goal, which is to say it out loud. Because the more we say Scripture out loud, the more it sticks in our hearts and our brains. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to say it out loud together, and it's going to be an awkward, conducted chorus thing, but we're going to do it. So let's just, just go with me. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised, buried, excuse me, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Excellent. Y'all did awesome. Well done. That's how we do it. It works. So we, um, then let's go ahead and get started. Let's get in there. As we look into the provision of Christ's work, we're going to split it into two pieces. We're going to talk about the new man and what does that look like? And then we're also going to talk about how Jesus is the answer for all of man's problems towards salvation. So let's, let's jump in. So as you look at our new condition as a human in Christ, there are multiple things that show up. We're reconciled to God. And one thing about this list that I love, it's past tense. It's done. It's complete, right? We're reconciled to God. Romans 5.10 says, As for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This word reconcile means to restore to a place of favor, right? We were enemies with God. We looked at that last week, and that's done. We've now been restored, reconciled to God, to a place of favor, at peace with him. And not only are we at peace with him, but it gets better. We're justified before God. And this term justified means to show or prove to be right. It's a legal term, right? So in a court of law, you are declared right or wrong. We are declared righteous. In 1 Peter 3.18, it makes it very clear that we did nothing to make this declaration. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's Christ that did it. We looked at that, the cost of his work. It's not us. All praise goes to him. Also in Romans 5, chapter 1, you see, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, not us. Justified through faith. Where did our faith come from? God gave it to us as a gift in Ephesians 2, 8, right? It's not us. In Galatians 2, 16, it says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, now we know it's not anything we've done, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. It's a beautiful story, knowing that we are totally depraved. Humanity is totally depraved. Everything's tainted by sin. But through Christ's work, He's provided reconciliation, justification, and we keep looking, and he's made us fully righteous. Nothing we could ever attain. Even if you were as good as you possibly could be from this day on, and we presumed, which is false, it's a lie, but you presumed that you could be perfect from this day forward. You still have all of your past baggage to deal with, and you can't be perfect. So made fully righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes it really clear. It's not our righteousness that that we have before God. It says, He made God, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's not ours. Jesus lived a perfect life here on earth, in the flesh. Tempted, as Hebrews says, tempted but yet without sin so that He could be the perfect man on the cross paying for our sins and exchanging not only the payment of sin but also the declaration and giving of righteousness. And we see also they were rescued from this evil present age. Last week we talked about as a totally depraved, unredeemed human, then you're subject to the world that Satan has been given control of, given control of. And you're subject to that world. 
But now as a redeemed human taking out of that kingdom of darkness as we looked at in Colossians and transferred into a kingdom of light, we are rescued from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We're no longer bound underneath Satan's world. We're in Christ. And lastly, our new condition means we are redeemed and forgiven. Redeemed and forgiven. In Ephesians chapter 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we, let's take a pause here. How do, how, you can tell me, how do you respond personally to the message that these are past tense? You've been reconciled. You've been justified. You've been rescued. You've been made fully righteous. You've been redeemed and forgiven. How do you respond to those truths, that they're a fact. Gratitude. Say it. Humble, you're humil- humbled. Yes. Joy. Worship. We have peace internally. This world has enough anxiety that's coming at us Opportunities to be not unified, opportunities to hate, opportunities to divide every minute, every day, every place. You pull up the news, like, ah, it's, it's just all over the place. But we can have peace. Does anybody have any favorite Psalms that they go to? They're like, this is the one I read when I want to praise God. I go to Psalms because you, it's, you, anywhere you can find it. Which says, if you quote the chapter and verse, Zach, we're going there. My flesh and my heart may fail me, but the Lord is the strength of my heart, and my help me forever. Nice. <laughs> nice. Exactly. 7326. I wrote down a couple others that I looked at. It's like these are, in my estimation, Psalms that caused me to praise the Lord. Psalm 9, Psalm 19. And then if you go into the 140 pluses, they just go back to back to back to back to back. 143, 147, 148. Go look at those. Go, go open the Psalter, and as you're feeling this, that is awesome that we have peace, joy, the ability to worship and praise the God of the universe in a state where he's not going to destroy us. No longer enemies, but adopted children welcomed into the family as if you never did anything wrong because Christ's righteousness is what he sees. That is something to praise God for. That is something to take us always to that space. The second aspect of the provision of the provisionary work of Christ, is that he's the answer to all of our problems concerning salvation. So we did an exercise last week where we took Romans 3, 10 to 12, and it proved to us our total depravity. So let's do an inverse exercise and go, hey, post-redemption, what does it look like? Post-redemption, where are we? The summary verse that you could always look at, Acts 4, 12, and this, this encapsulates all of it, is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's not anywhere else to go. Only in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ and his work and what he's done. So let's look at this uh, undoing of how God sees us exercise. So we were guilty before God. We were not righteous, right? The first thing in Romans 3.10 is you are not righteous. Well, look at Romans 5.19. It says, For as though the one man, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made 
righteous. Flipped on its head. We were also not understanding. But now, through Christ, 1 John chapter 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true and eternal God. This is true and eternal life. We now have understanding. We didn't do it. Christ came and gave it to you. He gave you a heart of flesh in exchange for a heart of stone. And he gave you his word and he reveals us, reveals himself to us in it. We looked at how no one seeks for God. And you might be thinking, well, the, Drew, the opposite, Drew, he's, he's about to say, so we seek for God. Actually, it's different on this one. No one seeks for God, but it's rather we were sought. Because remember, we wouldn't choose him. We weren't choosing him, and we still wouldn't choose him. But look at what Christ says in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He sought us, and not just in a blind search, in an effective seeking, and he brought us to himself, and he made it happen. We also looked at how all of us have turned aside. We thought about Isaiah 53.6, right? Turned aside, each to his own way. Right? They had all the instruction when Isaiah was written and when Romans 3 was written. They had all the instruction they needed to know who God was, know who Christ was, and know what God wanted. They had it all. They had enough. And we still turn to the side. But now we've returned to the shepherd. In 1 Peter 2, 25, it says, For you were continually strained like sheep. Yes, we were. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He sought us and he brought us back and we're back in the fold listening to the good shepherd's voice. We also looked at how no one was useful. All had become useless. But not only are we in Christ and we can praise him and we can know that we have a space in heaven, but he also made our existence here purposeful. And if we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Prior verses have a whole list of qualities of what it looks to be a fruitful Christian. And he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says this. He's given us good works to do that he planned before time. We have purpose. And we looked at how no one does good. And I just mentioned Ephesians 2.10. I'll read it to be more accurate. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now we have good work to do. And we do it. If you take Romans 3, 10 to 12, we just turned it on its head. Not us. Christ's work just provided the turning of it on on its head. That is awesome. If there's something you ever need to dwell on because your day is hard or your day is great, you pick the widest bracket of extremes and you want to dwell on God, Dwell on the inversing of Romans 3, 10 to 12. Because you can only end up in one place, and that is all the things y'all told me about. Peace, joy, encouragement, humility. A Christian walk in the way that they should walk. The classic uh, pairing of verses about dwelling on something, at least I, I go to here often, is Philippians chapter 4, 8 and 9, which many of you may have memorized. But it says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, 
and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But verse 9 continues. You think, well, what things? The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's what we're supposed to do. And we can do that. We can dwell on the inverse, you know, Romans 3, 10 to 12, and end up in the same place that earlier in chapter 4 of Philippians that Paul, writing from a imprisonment, not knowing his future, but knowing the purpose that God had given him was good, which is to get the gospel out to the Gentiles, he writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we can always end up there. It's amazing. So that's the inversing of Romans 3, 10 to 12, but it's not where the story stops as far as what has Christ provided us. Y'all can see it. We were enslaved to sin, and that is broken. That bond, those chains are gone. We have been set free. Romans 8 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then anytime I think of slavery to sin, I always go to Romans 6. Um, it's, it's where I have placed, go here when that happens. And it says, what shall we say then in the first six verses? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, no longer enslaved to sin. Says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We're not enslaved to sin. When you think of, can I beat this sin? Through Christ, the answer to that is yes. You can have victory. Will temptation stop? No, until the flesh is gone, until we have glorified bodies, until Christ comes and judges and it's all gone. But can you have victory? Yeah, that slavery's gone. Can you choose righteousness? Yes. You certainly can. And not only is the slavery gone, but we no longer face death the same way. Last week we looked at physical judgment, because of sin, physical death. And then after physical death, eternal judgment from God the Father who's right to judge sin. So from the physical death standpoint, we don't look at it the same way. What happens when you die as a Christian? This is an easy one. You go to heaven. Absent with the body, present with the Lord. You're done. Your time here is done. Your work here is done. You have a glorified body. You are with Christ. That's what happens. We don't look at death the same way. You shouldn't anyway. If you had, just switch it. Just now, just switch it. That's how we should be looking at it. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. That's where we were. The wrath of God was hanging and abiding on us. But in Romans 5, 9, we see post-redemption through the work of Christ, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're justified. We're reconciled. No longer enslaved to sin. Seen by God as fully righteous, not our own, but through Christ's. It's the other half of this great exchange. There's a darkness 
And then there's, that's been defeated and overcome, and we don't have to face death the same way. And the best one, the best one, is we don't face the wrath of God. Instead, we face his embrace as a father to his children who have returned. That is worth the word awesome. Everybody uses that word incorrectly. That's the correct usage. So, that is his provision. I know, how do you transition away from that? We should just stop and go home. But I have to keep going, right? So, that's his provision. So, we're going to look now at his motivation. Like, how, what motivated Christ to do this work? Three aspects that we're going to take a glance at. First off, his glory. Now, I'm going to be candid and vulnerable with you. Anytime I think of Christ did something for his own glory, my sinful flesh, my mind wants to think, that's selfish. It's wrong. Don't think that. But just know that at least one other human beside you thinks that way. It's wrong. That's why I put Isaiah 42.8. I didn't put it on there. That's why MacArthur, through Fundamentals of the Faith, put Isaiah 42.8 on there. Listen, listen to this. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Christ is to every shred of glory and praise that anyone ever could muster at any time because of who he is. Because of who he is. No one else is to receive his glory. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is praising the Lord. Praising God the Father, praising Christ the Son because of his great mercy of switching us from um, no hope to a living hope through Christ's work. It's not a selfish glory. He's worth it. He's do it because of who he is and what he's done. He also did it to fulfill scripture. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is post-resurrection Christ talking to his apostles, talking to the his followers, and he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Throughout time, God has made promises. He has made predictions, and he had to fulfill them. Christ came to fulfill them, and he did. And the one that um, we feel the best about potentially is it's because he loves us. There's a very common verse in the parentheses, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His love is expansive enough that when he saw the world, the atonement of Christ pays for all that would come to him in redemption and belief. Repentance and belief. And then in Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves his people. That's how he loves his creation. It's to go through all that we have studied to provide salvation. All that it cost him. His motivation for his work to substitutionally atone for us and to redeem his people is an example that we can follow even as we apply this to our own lives, right? Christ came and did this because of who he is and for his own glory. You can translate that to our lives. Like when we do work as a believer, are we doing it for the praise of God? Are we doing it 
just like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, so that others would see your works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is that our motivation? That's why I do, that's why I get up. That's why I go to the things. That's why I try to obey God is because it's for his glory, for what he has done. You can look at the second one, which is to fulfill scripture. Is the reason you do things to be obedient to scripture? Is that our motivation? We can translate his motivation to us. It's for his glory. It's to obey his word and it's to love his people. That's why we should work. That's why we should do the purposeful things that he's given us to do. We can copy his motivation. So ask yourself, is that my motivation in all that I do? And anytime you feel yourself doing stuff because it's not those motivations, stop, confess, repent, pray, and get back on the track of being motivated for Christ's glory to fulfill his scriptures, not fulfill, to obey his scriptures and to love the people that he's put around you. So that's his motivation. We can apply those things to our lives too. But we can look at his final aspect, which is the resolution of his work and the continuation of his work. So in the resolution camp of his work, the resurrection conquered death. It showed it could be beaten, and it was beaten, and it has been beaten. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord? And in 2 Timothy 1.10 it says, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death is done. It's been beaten. It no longer holds any sway over us. As soon as God brings our time here on earth to an end, like we talked about earlier, we're immediately present with the Father. But Christ's resurrection, the resolving of this problem of dealing with sin, also achieved his exaltation. He said on the cross, it is finished, and he died. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 4. It says, and he was buried, and he was raised according to the scriptures. His raising accomplished his exaltation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of his sins, no, excuse me, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where did he sit down? The right hand of the Father, the exalted place. There's no other more exalted place. And he sat down. It means he completed it. It is done. Which is awesome. When we think about Christ's resurrection, we also need to look at the necessity of it. Yes, it defeated death. We looked at that. Yes, it exalted Christ. But for us, why is it necessary for us? 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19 answers that for us in a couple of ways. It says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, 
only. We are of all men most to be pitied. We need the resurrection of Jesus Christ for hope, for the truth that his completion of the defeat of sin and death is true. Because that is what God has preached, that is what he's promised, and that is what he's done. We need Christ's resurrection. We also need him to go first. He's the first fruits in everything. He is preeminent. If someone had gone before him, then Christ would no longer be first and preeminent in everything. 1 Corinthians, continue the same passage, chapter 15, this next four verses, says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. He had to go first. If he didn't go first, he wouldn't be preeminent in everything. His glory would have been tarnished and he would no longer be the God of the universe that we know him to be. And he did go first. Another reason we have hope beyond him completing all of these things in the resolution of our problem of sin is that he's still continuing to work on our behalf. So let's look at that. His intercession and his mediation. So when you think of, look at what, if you want to turn to it, or I'll read it, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. So we have to define intercession so you know what he's doing. According to Oxford's dictionary, it's the action of intervening. I love it when it does that on behalf of another. When it says the word and this is the act of the word, like that's a helpful definition. Biblically, though, more accurately, it means to pray or entreat on behalf of someone. To pray for or entreat on behalf of someone. So Jesus is in the throne of God, exalted at the highest place, praying and entreating for us. That is something that should give us hope. That is something that should give us hope. He's also the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one that could do that. He's the only one that could do that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's fully God, which gives him the right to be there. He's fully perfect man, which gives him the right to be there. He's the only one that could do that and mediate on our behalf to reconcile or restore harmony between two different parties, us and God. He's the only one that could do that. And then John chapter 17, verses 9 to 24, John is the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus talking to God for our benefit. But if you wanted to see an example of intercession of what Christ does for us on our behalf, we'll see a few things of how he does that in this section. John chapter 17, verse 9 to 24. It's a longer stint, I know. So read with me. Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, uh, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture will be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may sell, they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you were given me for you, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I don't know if you were counting, but because I got to do this multiple times, I have been counting how many things that Jesus intercedes for us on behalf. Last night I was at eight. This morning I'm at nine. And you could probably argue for a tenth thing that Christ is interceding for us, asking, entreating, praying for us. He's asking us to be kept in his name, that we might be one, <clears throat> unified, that our joy would be made full like his joy. That he'd keep us from the evil one. That he'd sanctify us in truth. That he'd complete all future believers in unity. And we'd be with him where he is. That is what he is doing on our behalf in the throne room of God as our intercessor. The application question, is that how I pray and intercede and entreat God for people that I love, care about, and know. So really, go look at it. John chap, just read John chapter 17. It's like, do I pray like that about the people that I care about? That's super convicting to me. I know that the answer to that is no. I have room to grow. And then this last aspect that we can look at is, is Christ as creator. We mentioned it just in the John chapter 17 reading. But you can also look at John chapter 14, verse 3. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's making a place for us. And he wants us to be there with him. That alone is worth just dwelling on for a few, you know, millennia. Um, he's working to bring us home to him, and he's making a home for us. There's so much. There's so much here, and we're just skimming over the top of all these things. But I want to call your minds to three enduring truths that hit me like a ton of bricks, so I'm going to share that with you. We called this out early as one of our responses to studying the work of Christ, and that's to praise him, right? That's to praise him. In 1865, Elvina M. Hall wrote the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. And I was familiar by memory with the chorus Right, all to him I owe. Um, and so I was, okay, got it. Um, washed white as snow through the blood of the Lamb. 
But when I looked at the hymn and I looked at the five verses and the, 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 the proceeding to the chorus part, I want to share this with you because it does in one hymn what we've done in two weeks. Verse 1, I hear the Savior say, thy, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Talks about where we were, he's brought us, we're weak, we're broken. Verse 2, Lord, now indeed I find thy power, and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Only Christ can do that. Verse 3, for nothing good have I whereby the, thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Our personal works, works of the law, we don't, that doesn't get us anything. It's only through Christ's blood. Verse 4, and now complete in him my robe, his righteousness. I'll rejoice with all my might. I am now divinely blessed. His robe is our righteousness. He's given it to us. And then verse 5, it says, And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat the chorus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's an old hymn but it crushes in an accurate sense, current vernacular, what we should be thinking about all the time as far as the work of Jesus Christ in saving us. So secondly, ask yourself, not only am I praising Christ, but we talked about it earlier, when I think about the motivation behind my work, is it for His glory? Is it because I'm trying to be obedient to Scripture? And is it because I'm trying to love the people that He's put around me? Is that my motivation? And then lastly, I want you to take comfort and courage and confidence in the fact that Christ intercedes for us and he is our mediator between man and God and he's completed that work. Be courageous, be confident, be comfortable. Take comfort in that. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we have flown over core truths of who you are and in our skimming of the surface, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would receive all of the glory that we can muster because our hearts and minds are impacted by the truth of your word, by the truth that we are totally, humanity is totally depraved, everything tainted. Everything is useless and no one's righteous and no one seeks after you and no one does good, not even one. But because of your love for your creation, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the payment of sin and to fully satisfy that so that you would be just and the justifier and also to give us his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before you as accepted. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, as we go to worship, let this, these truths echo into our worship into the next hour. Lord, let them echo into the next minutes and hours and days and weeks of our lives so that we would always walk before you for your glory, obedient to your scripture, and living that out and loving those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.